the Explorers. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm your host, Kate Armstrong. When we think of American Civil War soldiers, we always think of men. But there were women out there on the battlefield, not just as nurses, but as soldiers. They cut off their hair, put on uniforms, and fought disguised as men. And not just a handful of them either. Some reports put the number of women who went off a warring somewhere around 400, though it was probably much more. We'll never know because so many of them kept their identities a secret. In a time when many people couldn't even conceive of a woman wearing pants, let alone shooting at people, they fought in nearly every battle. Some were even promoted, made officers and spies. They suffered everything the men did, the threat of death and dismemberment, deadly diseases, and being far away from home. But they also had to struggle with keeping their identities a secret and battle with the fear of what would happen if they were found out. In this episode, we'll go back in time and explore what it was like to be one of these soldiers. We'll look at why they fought, what they faced, and what they felt in the midst of America's bloodiest war. We'll also look at what happened to them after the war was over, and try to figure out how and why these women's stories were completely overridden with time. Put on a badly cut jacket and lower your voice a few octaves. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to my patrons. Amy, Brendan, Avery, Caroline, Edie, Elizabeth, Emily, Jackie, Caitlin, Karen, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Paul, and Walter. Thanks, guys! Let's make one thing clear from the get-go. In Victorian America, no one expects women to go off to the fight. In fact, you're not even allowed to. Although technically, that's not really true. No one wrote down any rules about women fighting because the concept didn't even enter their minds. Most people don't even think women are capable of that kind of aggression. We're living in a world of defined spheres, remember. A woman's sphere is domestic, are gentle, chaste, and submissive, while men, out in the public sphere, are the ones considered assertive and brash. Soldiering just isn't in a woman's makeup. But here we are anyway, standing in a soldier's camp. Try to imagine it. White tents stretch in every direction, dingy against the churned-up mud. Steam rises up from laundry vats. There are women around, camp followers and maybe some nurses. But mostly, all around you, it's men you see. They're everywhere, writing letters, chewing tobacco, playing poker, praying, trying not to gag at the collective stink. There is a definite stink in the air. Greasy fires, wet socks, thick mud, and a general ripeness. You can smell the disease pit they call the camp's privy from where you're standing. But despite the funk, your stomach's growling. Someone throws you an apple, and you reach out to catch it. But you'd better catch it the right way, the manly way. Otherwise, someone's going to figure out you're a girl. So how is it that you even got here? In 1861, volunteers are signing up in droves. What's prompting so many people to join? Victorian America is a place where God, country, and reputation are all wrapped up together in a messy cultural bow. 
So it stands to reason that soldiers' motivations often touch on all three of these. A strong consciousness of duty was super pervasive in Victorian America. To fight for God and country was a moral obligation. But there was also the idea of honor, preserving reputation, especially in the South. No one wanted to be thought a coward or a shirker. And many people feel what the French call rage militaire, an intense patriotic fervor. Both sides, North and South, see the war as a desperate struggle to preserve something sacred. Though they're fighting for different things, and our Southern lady friends are most certainly on the wrong side of history, their motivations for joining up are strikingly similar. In the North, there's the idea that they're trying to preserve a sacred union. It's what America's forefathers struggled for, what they died trying to create. The Southerners are the opposite side of the same coin. They feel like they're being threatened, that the North will rape and pillage their land, their way of life, their rights. Mary Todd Lincoln's beloved brother-in-law, a Confederate officer, said he fought for liberty and independence. They, too, invoke the Founding Fathers, saying, they rebelled against tyranny. Now we have to do the same. Women want to do their patriotic duty just as much as men do, sometimes more. Some are content to do that from home in ways that are socially acceptable. Sewing, baking, raising money, etc. But others are pining for a different kind of life. Sarah Morgan from Louisiana wrote, Oh, if only I were a man, then I could don the breeches and slay them with a will. If some few Southern women were in the ranks, they could set the men an example they would not blush to follow. Some are writing letters to commanders, asking to be allowed to take up arms, especially when they see that some of the men amongst them are less excited to do so. Whole lady posses are getting together, vowing to protect their towns as a sort of home guard. A group of Southern ladies wrote to the Confederate Secretary of War to give their regiment of ladies his blessing. Our homes have been visited time and again by the Vandal foe. We propose to leave our hearthstones to endure any sacrifice, any privation, for the ultimate success of our holy cause. At the beginning, no one thinks the war is going to last more than a couple of months, and everyone wants their chance at greatness. Some women just take it a few steps further and become soldiers. Women are patriots too, you know. It's worth noting here that volunteer enlistment numbers are high in the early years, but drop off as the war drags on. By 1863, we'll see the first American draft enacted. Wealthy citizens can actually hire a substitute to go for them, which outrages many. Desertion becomes a common theme. But every woman soldier is a volunteer. No one's making them go. In fact, they have to fight for the right to be there. The other reason women are joining up is to be with family. The delightfully named Melverina Elverina Peppercorn, age 16, joined the Confederate Army with her twin brother in 1862. Her mother actually let her join, though reluctantly. When her brother was shot in the leg, she stayed by his side to nurse him back to health. Frances Hook, age 22, joined the Union Army with her brother because they were orphans, and she couldn't stand for them to be separated. Some girls didn't want to be apart from their lovers. Miss Wisner was a planter's daughter from Alabama, whose father didn't approve of her poor lawyer beau. But she loved him so much that she ran away to Tupelo, Mississippi, where he was stationed, on the pretext of delivering some supplies to the army. 
They married in secret and she joined up to fight beside him. Fun honeymoon, right? Sarah Melinda Blaylock joined the Confederate Army because apparently her sweetheart wouldn't sign up without her. A pro-Union Southerner, this young sir wanted to desert from the get-go, but that turned out to be more dangerous than he'd thought. During the course of the war, around 500 soldiers were hung, two-thirds of those for deserting, and in a culture that values honor, this is a pretty horrifying way to go. So he came up with an ingenious plan. Strip naked, roll in poison oak, and give himself a rash so bad that he's disqualified from service. Our girl Melinda probably didn't have to bother with the poison oak, though. All she had to do was say she was a woman, and off home they sent her. Martha Parks Lindley enlisted with her husband William, leaving their children at home even though he begged her not to go. I was frightened half to death, she told a newspaper later, but I was so anxious to be with my husband that I resolved to see the thing through if it killed me. Even after her husband was injured, she fought out the entire length of her enlistment. She also, illegally, cast a vote that helped Abe Lincoln win his second presidential term. Get it, girl! Sometimes these women have help getting in from their family members and amorous partners. These gentlemen family members don't always know their lady relations have followed them. Nancy Corbin from Tennessee joined the Union Army so she could find her lover. Her father had driven her out, enraged for letting herself be seduced by a Yankee. And then there was Charlotte Hope. She joined the Confederate Army to avenge her fiancé. She said her goal was to kill one Yankee for every year of her dead lover's life. So, 21 Yankees. Now that's intense. These two core reasons, love of country and love of a man, are the explanations of choice when women get caught in military service. Self-sacrifice and romance fit neatly into the Victorian age, even if they don't quite fit the image of the ideal woman. You don't have to look far to find a play or a novel featuring a lady soldier. The female warrior bold is a defined trope of the age. She's virtuous, even heroic, a romantic figure of both beauty and daring. Sarah Emma Edmonds cites a book called Fanny Campbell, The Female Pirate Captain, as an early inspiration for her successful cross-dressing career. But there were also real-life lady soldier models to look to, ones that managed to be heroic while sticking to a pious, virtuous mold. Young Emily from Brooklyn asked her parents to join the army because she thought she was the next Joan of Arc. They promptly took her to Michigan for fear she was having hallucinations. Why Michigan? Is that a soothing place? But she escaped and joined up anyway. Sarah Loretta Velasquez, who will become quite famous when she publishes a book about her high times with soldiering, cited Joan as an inspiration. She was a great-hearted patriot, an example of what a woman may do if she only dares, and dares do it greatly. But of course, women have other reasons for joining. They're just less popular with society at large. One of them is for the money. Because let's be honest, no one's getting rich with farming or manual labor right now. Many of the soldiers stinking up the joint around you are farmers and laborers. They make up 64% of the Union force and 78% of the Confederate one. Not plantation owners or businessmen. No, no. 
A huge percentage are also immigrants from Europe, England, Scotland, and Ireland. They make up about 25%, one in four, of the Union Army, despite the fact that only about 13% of the population was born overseas at this time. That's a whole lot of people who may or may not be broke, and who may or may not feel much patriotic zeal. As a woman, you don't have many choices in terms of securing your own future. Right now, about half of the female population has to work at least some of the time to make ends meet. The other half, the upper and middle class, never have to work or can afford to stop doing so after marriage. About one-sixth of the population will need to earn throughout their lives. So let's say you're a farm gal. Governessing or teaching is probably out for you, which is too bad, as they might have afforded you a bit of independence. But even if you were higher class, getting married would still be your best bet at security. But let's say you don't, or that your husband dies and doesn't leave you much. A pretty common theme when the war comes around. There are jobs you can get. We've talked about these before. Domestic servitude, factory work, prostitution. But your choices are limited, and so is the pay. Your salary is guaranteed to be less than a man's, no matter how hard you work, because of the prevailing notion that women only ever work to supplement their husband's income or save a little bit while they wait to get married. Wage earning is the product of public labor, which by its nature is a male activity. It isn't for you to be the breadwinner, darling. It's unseemly and shakes the tree of Victorian belief too hard. A soldier's steady pay, food, board, and freedom to work for equal wages might be more attractive than you think. A Union soldier makes a steady $13 a month, and Confederates make 11 when they're actually paid. That's a lot more than the 4 to $10 a month you'll make as a domestic. Farm girl Rosetta Lyons-Wakeman was proud of her paycheck, most of which she sent home to her in-debt family. I'm enjoying myself better this summer than I ever did before in this world, she said. I have good clothing and enough to eat. I'll dress as I have a mind to for all anyone else cares. And if they don't like it, they should be sorry for it. She also added, I'm the fattest fellow you ever see. By which I think she means she's living large. Consider this too. In an era when it doesn't take much to be considered a fallen woman, and divorce is difficult and shameful, Women have plenty of reasons for wanting to invent a new life besides steady pay. And then, of course, there's the age-old reason. A lot of women want to go for the adventure. Some are going because they want to spread their wings and see one of the biggest events of their lifetimes. A girl from Wisconsin said she joined to be with family, but also because plain country life was not enough for my ambition. And then there's the least given and, to me, most compelling reason. Women are joining up so they can live like men do. Jenny Hodgers, who went by Albert Cashier, Rosetta Lyons-Wakeman, and Sarah Emma Edmonds, who went as Frank Thompson, were all living as men for years before the war started. It's hard to know what all of their motivations were for this, but one thing is clear. In living as men, they got to live and work however they damn well pleased. For immigrants and lower-class women like these, this kind of freedom changed their lives. As longtime pants wearer Lyons Wakeman put it, I'm as independent as a hog on the ice. 
Even for women pulling on pants for the first time, you can see how intoxicating it would be after a lifetime of dresses and a constricting role to abandon the pressures of having to find a husband, to be able to move freely and make your own way in the world. Wild child Loretta Velasquez was never a fan of a lady's trappings. She wanted to be an explorer, to roam the world as free as a man. So when she joined up with the Confederacy, she went to a French army tailor who made her a wire mesh contraption to wear under her uniform that would squash down her lady bits. And she was very happy with the results. Ah, she wrote later, after catching sight of her manly image, I am an uncommonly good-looking fellow. Some of these women felt so liberated that they didn't want to go back after the war. A drummer girl injured at the Battle of Gettysburg told a newspaper man, They could do what they please with her, but she would never wear women's clothes again. But pants wearing is a seriously dangerous business. In 1852, a Boston woman named Emma Snodgrass was arrested for donning the breeches. The New York Times Daily reported, scandalized, what her motive may be for thus obstinately rejecting the habiliments of her own sex is not known. She'd worked on steamships and found pants more practical, you know, as you do. And guess what? Dressing like a man, she made higher wages. So she kept wearing them until 1856, when she was arrested, called the unfeminine freak a girl in man's clothes. When a reporter asked why she did it, she said simply, well, because I can get along better. That's how many people viewed such women, as something derelict worthy of suspicion and punishment. Think about that next time you pull on your yoga pants. These women know they're taking a risk in marching off to the battlefield. They know they're taking an even bigger risk by pulling on men's pants. But they go anyway. Why? I think Sarah Emma Edmonds spoke for a lot of women when she said, I could only thank God that I was free and could go forward and work, and I was not obliged to stay at home and weep. Okay, but really, how are you getting away with this? Well, for one, because the armies need bodies. The War Department says they're supposed to strip and thoroughly check each recruit, but who has time for that when there are so many of them? At the beginning, doctors often don't have time to do proper strip searches. And then later, they'll need people so badly that they don't bother to check much at all. Let's see if you measure up to the soldiering checklist, shall we? 1. Can you see? 2. Do you have at least a partial set of teeth so that you can bite open a wad of gunpowder? 3. Do you have a trigger finger? Congratulations! We want you! When Sarah Emma Edmonds nervously lined up for her inspection... The surgeon just looked at her hands, and that was that. And besides, some women don't bother joining up officially. They slip into the ranks as free agents, tacking themselves onto a regiment or just joining in at the back of a march. They're caught sometimes, but it's easy enough to head on over to another state and join another one. One girl tried to join up five times. One of those, she wasn't even turned away for being a woman. It was for being too short. Remember that there are no birth certificates or photo IDs or searchable databases. All a woman has to do is put on some pants, cut off her hair, and choose a different name. But seriously, you're thinking, is that it? I just put on some pants and lower my voice a few octaves? How long can that ruse possibly last? Which brings us to a really interesting thing about Victorian America. The characteristics it takes to be a soldier 
assertiveness, aggression, initiative, are so tightly bound to the idea of maleness that, of course, only men can do it. Gender roles are so rigidly defined and so tied to the clothes you wear that a lot of men will never have seen a woman in pants before. If you're dressed as a man and you act like one, then you must be one. Simple as that. Though Jenny Hodgers, a.k.a. Albert Cashier, was by far the shortest person in his regiment at five feet tall, no one questioned her. One of her fellow officers commented later that, I did not dream that he was a woman. They made fun of him for the fact that he couldn't grow any facial hair, but apparently that didn't raise any alarms. Sarah Emma Edmonds' messmates used to jokingly call her Our Woman because of how small her feet were, but nobody ever guessed her true identity. They never even thought to look twice. General Poe, who worked with Emma closely, speaks to this nicely. A single glance at her in her proper character caused me to wonder how I could have ever mistaken her for a man. I readily recall many things that should have betrayed her, except that no one thought of finding a woman in a soldier's dress. Not even Loretta Velasquez's fiancé recognized her there, fighting beside him, all done up in pants and a wildly awesome mustache. When she knelt by his sickbed at an army hospital, he showed her a picture of herself and said, This is the woman I love. What do you think of her? Loretta replied that she was one fine-looking lady. And didn't he think that maybe there was a resemblance between them? Note to self, next time I want to go unnoticed, tack on fake mustache. The uniforms are loose and badly cut, which helps. It's surprisingly easy to hide womanly curves in these boxy jackets. How hard it is to disguise your sex depends on whether you're marching, in a camp, or in barracks. The closer and better watch the confines, the harder a time you're going to have pulling this off. Sometimes, whether or not you're caught depends a whole lot on how well you can play the man. It's no big shock that a lot of the women who successfully pass are farmers' daughters and immigrant laborers. They're the ones best practiced at typically male activities, riding, shooting, and a soldier's life, hard labor, lean conditions. In fact, sometimes these women prove better at soldiering than the men do. The whole ideal woman mold hasn't been drummed into them as firmly, which means playing the man doesn't feel like such a stretch. For some, manning up means perfecting the art of drinking, swearing, and all-purpose manly swagger. If you can swear like a sailor and win a few hands of cards, you're that much more likely to blend in. Melverina Elverina Peppercorn could apparently spit up to 10 feet. Francis Clayton, whose before and after pictures you should most certainly check out on my Instagram feed, learned to do it all. Hold her liquor, swear, play poker, and smoke cigars. Rosetta Lyons Wakeman got in a fist fight to prove her manliness. Don't worry, she beat him. I give him three or four pretty good cracks, she wrote, and he put downstairs with himself. One guy wrote of two lady Confederate prisoners that, They are a tough couple and talk far more worse than any degraded witch possibly could. They are very impudent and can beat any private in the oath-uttering line. And now, we pause to enjoy some of the oaths you may be uttering. Concern. Exclamation. Kind of like goddamn. Concern it, Richards. Stop stealing my musket. Dad sizzle. Exclamation. 
Also kind of like goddamn... Dad, sizzle me senseless. I'm sick of eating roasted rat. Thunderation. Exclamation. Kind of like tarnation. Thunderation, Armstrong. You outspit me again. Lick finger. Noun. Basically, it means a kiss ass. Quit shining the general's boots, you lick finger. Anyway, remember that this is the 19th century, and that means we're going to be doing very little bathing. For soldiers, this is especially true. Soldiers aren't taking their clothes off that much. It's too much of a hassle to strip at night when you have to be ready to get up at a moment's notice, and soldiers don't have that many pieces of clothing to swap with. So you're not really going to have to worry about stripping down in front of a bunkmate. And if you toddle off into the trees to do your business instead of the latrine, no one will think that's weird. The latrines in army camps are open, stinky cesspits, and a lot of the soldiers avoid them. They might think you're a bit shy, but that's fine. But what do you do about dealing with your monthlies? Again, there's the wandering into the trees option. After all, this is a situation where finding a bloody rag on the ground probably won't prompt any cries of, A harlot has stolen in among us! Also, with the intense hours of marching, stress, and a pretty bad diet, it's possible you'll quit your cycle altogether. Though several women were found out after about a month of service, which leads one to wonder. The armies are made up of mostly civilians, not trained soldiers, so your skills won't be any worse than the rest. The gun you'll carry is only 10 to 15 pounds, and the whole pack isn't more than 30. Even if you haven't been hauling weed around all your life, you can do this. The biggest issue you'll have is disguising the things you can't change. Say, the lack of an Adam's apple, a high-pitched voice, or small feet and hands. The lack of facial hair isn't so big a deal. A lot of teenagers are joining the army, so a fresh face isn't going to alarm anyone. And that probably explains why a lot of the women who join up are drummer boys. But there's no escaping that you'll have to learn two new identities, that of a soldier and that of a man. Imagine how hard that would be when you're tired, hungry, scared, lonely. But for some, perfection comes with practice. Loretta Velasquez said that the more comfortable she got in her male attire and her male persona, the less she had to think about pretending. In a way, it stopped being pretend at all. And then there's Mariah Lewis, who wins the award for most intensely layered disguise. She joined the Union Army and helped present 17 captured rebel flags to the War Department. And are you ready for this? She was an African-American woman, posing as white, posing as a man. What? And guess what, said one of her contemporaries. She wore a uniform and carried sword and carbine and rode and rooted and skirmished and fought just like the rest of us. Damn straight she did. Of course, some women have men friends to help them guard their secret. Those fathers and brothers and lovers who helped them join in the first place. But sometimes making friends with your fellow soldiers is going to be the best way to blend. These friends might have no idea you're a woman, but that's fine. In accepting you as a man, you're that much less likely to be discovered. You might even tell one of these male friends. He might not care, or he might report you. It turns out that plenty of male soldiers looked favorably on the women beside them. They fought bravely and never asked for special treatment, and that was enough for a lot of them. Undoubtedly, some of these confidants became lovers. 
There's nothing quite like close quarters and the fact that you might die tomorrow to make bunkmates ready to get up and personal. Sometimes women recognize and help cover for each other. What a relief it would be to run into another lady soldier in a sea of men, one person with whom you don't have to pretend. Sarah Emma Edmonds said in her memoir that she found such a soldier wounded at the Battle of Antietam. Apparently, she had enlisted with her brother, who died earlier that day, and she wanted Emma to bury her personally so that no one would figure out her secret. So Emma got two other guys to help her, and no one ever knew. We know that she wasn't actually at Antietam, so this story couldn't have happened to her there. Maybe it happened to someone she knew. Our girl Clara Barton certainly discovered a few lady soldiers under her care. Or maybe the story reflects her own anxieties. The fear of being buried far from home, with no one who truly knows you, or can write your real name above your grave. So outside of swearing and filthy cesspits, what is soldier's life like for a woman? For that, we'll have to step out on the battlefield. It's probably a cornfield, or something like it. You've got soldiers on either side of you, firing in a long row. You're holding a musket rifle that only fires three rounds a minute. Filling it with gunpowder requires you to rip the packet open with your teeth. It may seem old school to our modern eyes, but the Manet balls you're firing are pretty high-tech. Invented by a Frenchman in 1849, its hollow base expands when fired and can travel up to 250 yards. Unfortunately, they don't just cut clean through, they shatter bone. There's smoke in your lungs, and you're about to rush the enemy. You'll do it in a line, your sharp bayonet pointed outward. You're unlikely to have to use it, but you might if you get close enough. Everything is loud, messy, and bloody. Your chances of dying out here are 1 in 65, or something like it. About 15% of lady soldiers sustain at least one battle wound. Consider, too, that you're probably malnourished, sick, and have been marching for days. You've been eating things like hardtack, an unsatisfying biscuit made from unleavened flour and water. They're also called sheet iron crackers, which should be all you need to know about how tasty they are. There's also mealy bread, desiccated veggie cubes, and salt beef, often called salt horse which is preserved in saltpeter, or potassium nitrate, which is also used to preserve dead soldiers' bodies. Mmm. It smells like death and has to be soaked overnight just to be able to swallow it. As one soldier wrote about Union cuisine, I must say Uncle Sam doesn't feed his soldiers as he ought. Hard crackers and salt junk is not the thing for a man to fight on. A Confederate staple is called koosh. Bacon grease and sometimes salt pork mixed with cornmeal and water and fried into a pancake. That sure does sound like a meal a man who's never, ever cooked for himself would come up with. Most of the camp cooks are men, and one of the most common nicknames for them is belly robber. Picture the most helpless college freshman you've ever seen trying to make an instant mac and cheese and peanut brittle sandwich in a dorm room microwave. But worse. So much worse. So yeah, nutrition, not at an all-time high. All of this at a time when refrigeration and preservation aren't always possible. If boiled meat under a Georgia sun isn't a recipe for trouble, I don't know what is. And apparently a lot of soldiers are dealing with flux, or the Virginia quick step, or the Tennessee trots. 
About three-fourths of the Union Army suffer from chronic diarrhea at any one time. We can make all the poop jokes we want here, but diarrhea kills. But seriously, the average death toll at the big battles is in the tens of thousands. The war will claim the lives of 2% of the American population, around 620,000 people, more than the total American fatalities in both world wars, the Mexican War, the Korean War, the War of 1812, and the Spanish-American War combined. And because neither side is prepared for the carnage, you might lie wounded on the field for days before someone finds you. You run the risk of dying far from home, with no one there who knows who you truly are. Some 11% of lady soldiers die while serving, that we know of. One out of three of these are from disease. Chances are you won't have a Sarah Emma Edmonds to bury you. One girl, discovered dying at the Battle of Lookout Mountain, asked her colonel to write this sad letter to her parents. Forgive your dying daughter. I have but a few moments to live. The native soil drinks my blood. I expected to deliver my country, but the fates would not have it so. I am content to die. Pray, Pa, forgive me. Tell Ma to kiss my daguerreotype. It's with some pride that I note that, if contemporary reports are anything to go by, these women served faithfully and well. Most serve out their full enlistment. On average, they fight for 16 total months. Frances Clayton saw her husband fall on the field, right in front of her. But when the call came to attach her bayonet in charge, she left him behind and did it. Jenny Hodgers, or Albert Cashier, went to the field because soldiers were needed and she wanted a bit of adventure. And she sure got a lot of it. She was much respected and admired by her fellow soldiers for bravery and daring. She fought in more than a dozen battles and was never hurt despite the fact that she volunteered for the most dangerous duties. Once, when she was captured, she knocked out her guard, took his gun, outran her pursuers, and then turned around and taunted them. Another time, she climbed up a tree through heavy sniper fire to rehang a Union flag that had fallen to the ground. Damn, Albert! Women are promoted to almost every rank, up to major. The promotion rate for women soldiers is 14%. That's higher than the men's. And there aren't any records to suggest that women are court-martialed for military crimes or for failing to perform their duties. A few of them deserted for various reasons, but really, they weren't supposed to be there to begin with. So how are these women caught? Sometimes it's because they exhibit what's considered patently feminine behaviors. One woman was just a little too good at sewing and was eventually caught out because of how she wrung a dishcloth. For another, it was the particular way she jerked her head. When someone threw a piece of food at them, a few pulled up the corners of invisible aprons to catch it. One girl apparently tried to put her pants on over her head. What? And then there was Sarah Bradbury and Ella Reno, who went down in hilarious flames. General Sheridan had the following to say about their little misadventure. While out on a foraging expedition, these Amazons had secured a supply of Applejack by some means, got very drunk, and on the return had fallen into the Stone River and been nearly drowned. They were found out when someone tried to resuscitate them. Sheridan was mighty embarrassed. Ella Reno apparently enlisted four times and was found out every one of them. 
but the Applejack incident didn't ruin her reputation. She was eventually passed on to Ambrose Burnside, whose amazing mutton chops are where the term sideburns comes from. And his secretary said she was noted for her bravery and daring. Sometimes women are recognized by someone they know and outed. Exhibit A, this excerpt from a newspaper article from 1861, titled, An Amazon. Mary W. Dennis, six feet two inches high, is first lieutenant of the Stillwater Company, Minnesota Regiment. She baffled even the inspection of the surgeon of the regiment in discovering her sex, but was recognized by a St. Paul printer, who became shockingly frightened at her threats of vengeance upon him if he exposed her, and he decamped. You tell him, Mary. But, amazingly, only 10% of women are caught in the ranks. Some 17% of them go on to serve openly as women. Yes, you heard that right. Openly as women. Most are found out when they're injured. It's hard to hide the fact that you're a woman when someone cuts away your clothes. Women wounded in the face aren't always discovered, but those hurt in more sensitive areas are pretty likely to be found out. Take Mary Galloway. She was shot in the neck at the Battle of Antietam and lay untended in the field for 36 hours. She didn't want the doctor to examine her, so nurse Clara Barton had to convince her. Turns out the bullet went straight through, managing not to hit any major organs, before lodging itself in her back. So the doctor removed it, without any anesthetic, and Clara nursed her back to health. She admitted to Clara that she joined the army to find her lieutenant lover, and that she was only 16. Clara actually found the man for her. He was in a hospital in Maryland. They'd go on to be reunited and married. But some women are caught because, wait for it, they're pregnant. Six, count it, six women are known to have served while in the family way. Some of them actually gave birth while on duty, having somehow hidden it all the way through. All of the reports we have of this happening state that the births went fine, and both baby and mother lived through it. This in a time when it wasn't that uncommon for a woman to die in childbirth. I just... I don't even know what to say about that. The following dramatization is based on a true story. Imagine a woman out on picket duty with a few other soldiers. That's where soldiers stand guard, minding the boundaries of camps and territories, which is both tedious and very dangerous. She's wearing a baggy jacket, just like everyone else. Has she been stealing rations? She's looking a little round in the middle. I'm not feeling too well. Quit your whining, Reynolds. We've all got the runs. I... I really don't feel well. Thunderation. What's that thing between your concerned limbs? This particular woman got taken to a nearby farmhouse, and there, as one soldier put it, the worthy corporal was safely delivered of a fine, fat little recruit. Her fellow soldiers were so excited that they started up a collection for her and the child, but they were concerned that she wasn't married, so they got her to admit who the soldier was who'd knocked her up. They then made him give $8 of every paycheck by way of child support. Yes! When a husband wrote home to his wife about another soldier birth, she responded, What a woman she must have been. I can't contrive how she hid it. In fact, hiding bodily conditions, wounds, and illnesses is something many women soldiers do because they're afraid of discovery. 
Sarah Emma Edmonds broke her leg and never got help for it. She suffered from pains in that leg for the rest of her life. Hospitals aren't always safe places to be. Twice as many Civil War soldiers died of disease than of their battle wounds. In 1864, at age 22, Lyons Wakeman died of a slow, horrible dysentery-like disease. And though she was in a hospital for more than a month, probably very weak and not able to take care of herself, it seems that no one figured out she was a woman. Another piece of evidence to suggest that treatment in overcrowded military hospitals leaves something to be desired. As we discussed in Episode 2, infection is a constant worry, hence one of the reasons why so many limbs are chopped off. And in fact, several women have their limbs chopped off. A Union soldier writing home about a Confederate woman who met that fate is equal part sorrow and curiosity. I must tell you that we've got a female success here. I've not seen her, but they say she's very good looking. They say she's lost a leg. It's a shame she did not stay at home with her mother. But I hope she'll get better and get home to her friends. Sometimes women are caught when they're taken prisoner. Some 18% of women soldiers are. Let's just say up front that Civil War prison camps are bad, bad, bad. Bad food, bad hygiene, often appalling treatment and conditions. Often, women are exchanged or released when they're discovered, though exchange happens less and less as the war goes on. Others are segregated from the men and given women's clothes to wear. But some lady prisoners choose to conceal their sex and suffer alongside their compatriots. Or perhaps they fear what will happen to them if the enemy finds them out. Being a prisoner of war is bad enough, but a woman prisoner of war who dares to fight? Who knows what emotions that might prompt in a prison where rules aren't always followed. Mary Ann Clark told her captors she wanted to stay with her friends in prison, but they ultimately decided to exchange her for a male prisoner after she promised to give up the soldier's life and go home. But halfway there, she changed her mind and re-enlisted. She threw those pants back on, joined back up, and rose to the rank of lieutenant. Damn! But not all women prisoners are getting special treatment. 20-year-old Florina Budwin went to the infamously terrible Andersonville prison with her husband, who was killed by some guards. She was eventually transferred to the also-horrible Florence, South Carolina, where she got so sick that her cover was blown. Though she was given a private room and good medical care, including medicine and clothes donated by some local women, she died. Women soldiers worry a lot about getting caught because they don't know what will happen to them when they are. There aren't really any martial laws about it. Why would there be when women can't fight, right? This gray absence of procedure means that men have no idea what to do with us and are often making decisions on the fly. And that's not always a good thing. Most women, when caught, are just sent home. I'm guessing that's because the officers in charge of them are so embarrassed to have missed them in the ranks that they just want them to fade away. But so much of how they're dealt with depends on the views and whims of the men around them. Some women, when caught, beg to be kept on in some capacity so that they can be with their loved ones. Elizabeth Finnern was discovered in the Ohio Infantry in 1861, but she was allowed to stay on as a battlefield nurse and a surgeon's assistant, as well as a laundress and seamstress. 
She still wore men's clothes, as it was deemed more practical. One of her regiment fellows said that, In times of danger, she carried a musket just as did the soldiers, and in all respects shared the rough life of the men about her. So basically, she kept doing it all, and she never got paid. Nice. Other women, if kept on, are forced to put on skirts and sidelined. Others are just summarily dismissed. Fanny Lee, upon being discovered, requested a nursing position, and she was denied. Apparently, she had so far unsexed herself as to be unfit for duty. For others, the consequences are far more worrying. When one woman was caught in the ranks with her husband, they refused to hear her pleas to stay with him, though she told them that he was all she had in the world. Dismissed from service, she threw herself into the Chicago River and almost drowned. She isn't the only outed female soldier who tries to kill herself when she's sent home. Women caught in the ranks are often suspected of being spies. Spies are sent to prison, which we've learned is not a place we want to go. They're seen as spectacles to shame and jeer at. A union officer had this to report home to his fiancée about a woman officer they captured at Cold Harbor. We did capture a fully-fledged artillery woman who was working regularly at the piece. She was very independent and saucy, as most Southern women are. But Maggie Simpson, arrested in 1864, wins the prize for having the most colorful description given by a captor. She was by no means an ornament to her sex. On the whole, she was rather a scaly-looking specimen with a face similar to a crocodile and a voice as sweet as a cracked fiddle or an old cowbell or bellows. She ended up in jail for 30 days. Because of the spying she'd done, you say? Nope, for the crime of cross-dressing. So did Lizzie Hoffman, a black woman from Virginia who served two years in the 45th U.S. Colored Infantry. She was arrested when she got into a steamer with the rest of her regiment and sent to a prison in Washington. There, she was forced to change into a dress. But sometimes, when lady soldiers are discovered, the brass decide their duplicity will make them good spies, and employ them as such. Loretta Velasquez, by her own account quite a wild and crazy minx, earned $2 a day as a double agent in Washington, pretending to spy for the Union when really she was spying for the Confederate cause. My experience convinced me that a courageous and resolute woman who had a talent for assuming disguises could perform important services that a man could not even attempt. Some women soldiers are, unfortunately, suspected of being prostitutes when they're caught. A woman wearing pants and being independent? Harlot. And as we found out in episode four, that's not a charge to be taken lightly. A popular theatrical pastime during this era are plays in which you can go and see actresses perform in breeches parts. Costumed in trousers or tights, performing male roles, with pretty much the sole purpose of titillating the audience. Such women appear free, wild, up for anything. Popular actress Pauline Cushman, whose scantily clad costumes are known, according to one reporter, to make a man lose all restraint over himself, sometimes wore military uniform while performing for troops. So imagine, as a lady soldier, seeing the men around you whooping and making lewd comments about a woman on stage in pants. How would that make you feel? What would that make you fear? 
A commander accused Mary and Molly Bell, who by all accounts served well during their two years of service, of demoralizing several hundred men and using their disguise as a way to hide their iniquity. They were sent to the horrible Castle Thunder for almost a month. On the other end of the spectrum, especially in the Confederate Army, lady soldiers are sometimes allowed to keep fighting even after their sex is discovered. This is probably because the South is greatly outnumbered, and they can't really afford to send good soldiers away. Take a woman that they call Captain Billy. When someone saw her in command of a company at a North Carolina train station in 1863, he ran straight to the general to tattle on her. But General D.H. Hill just said, My boy, that woman is an example for some of these men staying at home. Over the course of the war, some women get comfortable enough that they just stop pretending. A few women, especially ones in the wilder Western theater, never bother pretending at all. When I discovered that women fought in the Civil War, I thought I'd stumbled on some deep, dark secret. But it turns out that, in the 1860s, women in the ranks are no secret at all. There are lots of newspapers reporting on women soldiers. Novels are published, both fictional and not, about women soldiers during and after the war. It seems like the public can't get enough of them. News stories actually have a lot to tell us about the confusing and often contradicting attitudes of the day towards lady soldiers. Here are a smattering. 30 women were discovered in Ellsworth Zouave's after the regiment arrived in Washington. They were sent home. The Zouave's, we fear, are not all of the highest moral character. A week later, that same paper said this of a woman who'd officially volunteered to be a nurse in the field. The young lady had of her own free will chosen to brave the dangers of the battlefield and must indeed be nerved by the fortitude of a, we like to have said, hero. Well, hero be it, for she looked the hero. Without fail, almost every article mentions what the woman looks like, more specifically, whether she's pretty or not. I imagine that some of this has to do with the novelty of the subject matter. These writers are trying to sell papers, after all, and paint an evocative picture. But still, They're described as Amazons, paragons, angels, or harlots, all depending on how she acts and why she joined. If a woman joins up and fights for the right reasons, the approved reasons, she's often heralded in the media. If she joined for adventure, money, or escape, they're far less kind. But how do your fellow soldiers feel about it? In their letters, we find shock, hilarity, outrage, awe, appreciation, curiosity, and acceptance. The ladies who are caught and turned out early are often the butt of jokes and ridicule. But the ones who serve, and serve well, for long periods, are mostly spoken of fondly. When you fight beside someone, it forms a special bond, and as we'll see, Those bonds will show themselves in touching ways when the war is out. Speaking of which, let's hop forward in time. Now it's 1865. But what will life look like for a lady veteran? After the war, some women will seek notoriety for their service. Several of them will write books about their experiences. And some will talk about them with the press. But most of them will put a dress right back on and continue with life as it was. 
Others still will never again want to give up what one lady soldier called her citizen's dress. Regardless, life after war is hard for many, especially as they start to age. Given the severe limitations of 19th century medicine, there are lingering injuries and ailments to deal with. This is particularly true for women, many of whom were afraid to seek out medical help in the first place. Such ailments, both emotional and physical, can make it hard to make a living. Just like before the war, your chances of thriving have much to do with your position in society. Poor women who fought, especially those who aren't married, struggle. Mariah Lewis, the African-American woman who passed as both white and a man so she could fight for the North, must have had no safe haven to return to. She turned herself over to abolitionists helping freed slaves in Alexandria, Virginia. And after that, like so many women vets, we have no record of what ultimately happened to her. If you're a male vet in the North, you're eligible for a soldier's pension. Nurses are too, as well as widows of soldiers. At first, they're only paid out from time of application, but by the late 1870s, there are laws that allow you to get a lump sum for the time you may have missed. As the losers, Southerners won't get pensions for much longer. And until then, you'll have to do your best to pick up the pieces of your ruined home. And guess what? I'm sure this will shock you, but if you're a woman veteran, you won't be getting a pension. Because according to the government, you were never there at all. Some women choose not to call in their chips with the government, even when they end up destitute in older age. Mary Brown fought with her husband, Ivory, then went home to Maine and lived on their small farm. But when Ivory's health started going downhill, the childless couple couldn't keep up with the farm. They lived on charity and Ivory's pension until he died in 1903. Mary lived on, fending for herself for several decades, getting increasingly sick as a result of, as she said, drinking bad water in the war. By the 1930s, she was old and very sick in Portland, with what she described as lizards in her bloodstream. She spent years in a hospital as a charity case, dying at the age of 98. And in all that time, 70 years... Mary Brown never claimed her soldier's pension. The pension that she earned, just as much as her husband earned his. Many women don't claim their pensions because they don't know, or don't think, they're entitled to one. Some just don't want the public attention that trying to get a pension will require. For those who do, there are two glaring hurdles. First, you have to offer proof that you were the man you say you are. And second, the government doesn't want to admit you were there. Though Sarah Emma Edmonds' book about her time in the army sold like hotcakes, she didn't go public with her actual identity until 1883. But the government wanted proof that she was indeed Franklin Thompson, and in a time when there are no selfies or fingerprint recognition tests, or really any ironclad way of proving she was Frank, she had to rely on her former brothers-in-arms to write letters swearing that they knew her. And they did. But still, such claims are a game of he said, she said. Cases like hers depend entirely on men. The ones who served with her, the ones writing stories in the press about her, and the ones sitting behind official desks. Her story ended fairly happily, partially because Emma put on a dress, got married, and lived a conventional life after the war in many respects. Not so for the women who choose to continue living life as a man. 
Albert Cashier lived as a man before the war and continued to live as one for the rest of her life. She never really talked about her motivations for doing this. Was it because men's clothes better fit her identity, desires, and proclivities? Was it because this Irish immigrant with no family to speak of couldn't make a good living any other way? Was it both? We don't know. We do know that after being mustered out of the infantry, she went back to Illinois and worked a number of jobs over the years. Farmhands, babysitter, janitor, handyman, and co-owner of a nursery, which she ran with a fellow veteran. She was well-liked, so much so that a local family reserved a spot for her in their home funeral plot. She didn't go for a soldier's pension until 1890, when a local lawyer helped her get it. But not as Jenny Hodgers, as Albert Cashier. No one, not even a doctor, knew her secret until a decade later, when a senator accidentally ran over her leg with his car. After that, she never was able to support herself and became an invalid by age 66. The guilty senator helped get her into a sailor's and soldier's home, swearing the staff to secrecy so that she could stay in the all-male home. For three years, she got increasingly sick and senile. Meanwhile, her secret leaked out into the press. The State Department was fuming. They accused her of defrauding them for decades, using a false name to get money she wasn't owed. So they sent investigators to try and find out the truth of the matter. Meanwhile, her friends, acquaintances, old army buddies, and the world at large were reading about her in the newspaper. Imagine how vulnerable that would make you feel, to have your life exposed and your identity debated in a society where such a life would have been considered shameful, and such an identity would have had people calling her a deviant. In the midst of all that, the soldiers' home thought she had become too senile for them to care for, and they had her declared insane. Brave, daring Albert Cashier was put into an asylum. During the year and a half she was there, they forced her to wear skirts against her wishes. And because she'd spent most of her life wearing pants, she tripped over her hem one day and broke her hip. She was put into bed and never really got back up again. But members of the 95th Illinois Infantry rallied around her, both with the Pension Bureau and by going to visit. Their commanding officer went more than anyone else. They hadn't known she was a woman when she served with them, but ultimately, it didn't matter. She served beside them, fought and risked her life with them. They were enraged when she was forced into a woman's wing at the asylum, and angry at what they saw as the government's ploy to save money by defrauding her. The Pension Bureau raked through her life, calling in many witnesses to try and poke holes in her character and in her sanity. But the men deposed spoke highly of her as a soldier. In 1915, the government decided that she could go ahead and keep her pension. But Albert Cashier died that same year. The local veterans chapter gave her a full military burial, in her uniform, with a Union flag draped over her coffin. A good number of women veterans would become part of their local veterans groups, and are also given military burials. But as the decades went on, women soldiers were scrubbed from the history books, literally written over by people who didn't want to acknowledge they were there. How does that even happen? While not all people in Victorian America loved the idea of women soldiers, they were an accepted fact, included in reviews of the war and seen in the public consciousness as heroic, or at the very least worthy of notice. 
But by a half century later, in 1909, the government put out a statement about it. When someone wrote in to ask how many women fought in the war, they responded, I have the honor to inform you that no official record has been found in the War Department showing specifically that any woman was ever enlisted in the military service of the United States. Excuse me, what now? By the 1930s, the scholars who did talk about them cast them as loose women, deranged, depraved. By the 1960s, they'd vanished entirely. It wasn't until the 1990s that female scholars started really digging through the records and were able to prove at last that women were there. But they were always there, fighting valiantly, nursing, spying, dying. They were there by choice, defying the notion that women couldn't pick up a musket and fight for what they thought was right. And for that, I raise my glass, put a hand on my heart, and salute them. Thanks for listening to The Explores. If you liked it, please rate and review it on iTunes. That's the best way to help other people find it. If you want to support the show, go to my Patreon page at patreon slash By becoming a patron, you'll get access to bonus content, including an awesome episode about a couple of the ladies we met in this one. You've got to go to my Instagram at the Explores Podcast and check out all of the amazing lady soldier photos I'm posting there. Otherwise, go to my website for a transcript of this episode, great images, recommended reading, and a full list of my sources at www.theexplorespodcast.com. Come find me on Twitter at The Explores Pod and Facebook at The Explores Podcast. A special shout out to Deanne Blanton and Lauren M. Cook, who wrote the fabulous book, They Fought Like Demons, all about female soldiers in the Civil War. It provided the backbone for this episode and is a big part of what inspired me to start The Explores. I left out so many good stories, so if you're interested in hearing more, go give it a read. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my theme music and logo, and the following legends for their vocal stylings. John Armstrong, Phil Chevalier, Jackie Chevalier-Mosley, Caitlin Seifert, Simon Zanatras, Andrew Goldman, Billy Kaplan, Avery Downing, and Stephen Reichel. The music from this episode is by Lobo Loco. You can find a link to his music on my website. Next time on The Explores. Civil War soldier Franklin Thompson fought and nursed on countless battlefields, rode down dangerous roads to deliver important mail, dressed up in crazy disguises and spied on the Confederate Army, and wrote a best-selling book about it all. But all that while, Frank had a secret. She was actually Sarah Emma Edmonds in disguise. Emma ran away from home to escape a life she didn't want, and lived as a man for years, free and independent. She suffered illness and injury to carve her mark into American history, all the while trying not to get caught in the ranks. Get ready for a tale of high adventure, intense action, forbidden love, and inspiring courage. Let's go traveling. <laughs>